This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 23rd of February, 2022. The topic was managing suicidal risk in adolescence. On the panel, we had Dr. Michelle Tai, Senior Research Fellow at the Black Dog Institute, Dr. Nicola Holmes, GP at Headspace and Training Facilitator for the Black Dog Institute, and Mitch was our lived experience representative. Chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. So welcome everyone um, to Managing Suicidal Risk in Adolescence. Uh, this is the Expert Insights for Health Professional webinar series um, by the Black Dog Institute. I'm Carol Newell. Um, so welcome everyone. I'm the moderator uh, for tonight. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist and I work in Sydney in private practice, but also facilitate for the Black Dog Institute. Got a really great panel tonight. Um, what we're going to do is just get um, each of our panel members to introduce themselves. I'm going to start with Nicola. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your expertise in this area, Nicola? Sure, Carol. I'm a GP working um, rurally in Coffs Harbour, and I've spent 10 years working in the headspace setting, mostly with adolescents, 12 to 25, lots and lots of complex mental health. Um, I've got a bit of an interest in transgender youth and those that have had childhood sort of complex trauma as well. Um, and I was really interested in this sort of managing suicidal risk topic. And from my point of view, I think I'd felt a bit cocky for a long time, having worked for 10 years and touch wood, we hadn't lost anyone for suicide. And then I had a real grounding experience when a friend of mine nearly died last December. Um, just a few months ago, and it really just sort of reminded me what a challenging space it is and how hard it can be to to totally be on the ball the whole time. So, yeah, I just thought I'd come and, and join in today. Oh, Thanks. thank you so much, Nicola, and, and thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, you've just reminded us that, you know, suicide prevention uh, is not just about the statistics, right? It's such a human element to it um, that is... That really just affects us so much. So, absolutely. Michelle, um, introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your expertise in this area. Sure. Um, so, I'm a senior research fellow at the Black Dog Institute. Um, so, I work in our um, suicide prevention stream of work. Um, I work across quite a diverse range of studies. Um, so, some of my work focuses more kind of on epidemiological research around understanding suicide behaviour um, and then really kind of applying that evidence to the development and testing of interventions um, for suicide prevention. So my work, some of my kind of more youth suicide work is in the space of um, evaluating school-based programs for young people um, and in the development and testing of digital therapeutics um, to help young people self-manage suicidal ideation. Um, and then I do a whole kind of other body of work, which is really looking at large scale community based trials of multi level interventions for suicide prevention. So, um, yeah, a mixed bag, I suppose. Absolutely. But you're going to bring so much research expertise um, into this space tonight. Um, Mitch, uh, can I get you to please introduce yourself um, and tell us a little bit about yourself um, in the space? Of course. My name is Mitch. Uh, I am 23 years old. Uh, I'm in Noel, um, which is um, Bediagul people land. And I got married late last year um, to my beautiful wife. 
uh, we have a dog and two cats. Um, and I have a reasonably complex um, history of mental health issues as well as um, general sort of personality challenges. Um, so I've had multiple experiences um, with different forms of therapy across the last five years. Uh, and I started struggling when I was nine and a half years old. Um, and I have had uh, a few periods of my life where I've been suicidal uh, to different degrees. So you're going to kind of bring that experience in terms of what it was like to work with health professionals, what it was like growing up with having these suicidal thoughts and risk um, throughout that adolescent period. So thank you for joining us, Mitch. So we'll start with this question, um, which uh, I actually realised even working in this area, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the statistic is. Um, are the rates of self-harm and suicidal ideation higher in adolescent than in other age group, Michelle? Because I know there's a lot of concern around risk for adolescents from parents, from teachers. Is it a lot higher in this age group? Um, yeah, so the, I guess the short answer is yes. So we do um, we do know that adolescence is definitely a group of concern um, when we're talking about suicide. So um, few, I mean, although few young people do actually die from suicide, uh, suicide is the leading cause of death for young Australians aged 15 to 24 years. And it's really in that kind of 15 to 24 age group where we do really see this quite um, rapid, significant increase in, in intentional self-harm behaviours. So um, in that age group, we're seeing the highest rates of presentation to hospital for intentional self-harm um, in Australia relative to any other age group. Yeah. Um, and those rates are really quite the highest among females who are aged 15 to 19 years. Um, mm -hmm. So the kind of most recent statistics are that they present to hospital, um, they have about 550 presentations to hospital per 100,000 population. Mm. So just, I guess, putting that a little bit into context, if we were looking at all uh, females across all ages in Australia, um, the rate is a lot lower. So it's more around 140 presentations to hospital um, mm. per 100,000 population. Um, yeah. and, and those rates in young females are at least two times higher than what we see in boys of the same age group. So even though they both kind of have that elevated risk, um, mm. it certainly seems to kind of concentrate in younger females. Yeah. So what is the um, what is the reason why we see these elevated rates? Um, I'm going to start with Michelle first in terms of what the research says, and I might actually turn to Mitch because I love his personal experience in this area. Do you, are there any you know? kind of theories as to what's happening around that adolescent space um I'm I'm that's a big question yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to cycle through everything I know I mean obviously I think you know adolescents are going through a period of rapid cognitive physical growth there's a lot of change going on mm. um, their brains are developing they're you know, they kind of haven't fully formed their kind of coping resources um, in adolescence. And mm. really, you know, if you think back to adolescence, there is a lot going on. So there are a lot of stresses. Um, I guess their kind of problem solving abilities aren't quite, you know, fully formed yet. And so I think they just have a bit more of a kind of a bit more, I guess, receptive to the stress or they kind of don't know how to tolerate the stress. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, I guess, a learned behaviour to some extent. So there's, yeah, that's some of what's going on. Um, Absolutely. Hopefully Nicola has a better answer than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, agree. 
I agree totally, Michelle. I think also there's a lot of pressure on this age group, maybe more than ever before due to that interconnectedness with social media and pressures coming at them 24 hours a day from friends and, and media and other sources as well that can sort of add to that distress um, level as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It is such a challenging time. Mitch, can you, I mean, we've, we've got some of the research evidence around here and, and some theories. What was it, what was it during adolescence that, that made you particularly vulnerable um, to, to suicidal risk? Yeah. So answering that question is different than mm. what I was intending to say. Uh, <laughs> but to, to first answer that question, I would say that it was a lack of education that made me particularly at risk. Mm. I didn't have a good understanding of what was happening to me, what I was experiencing, whether I was alone in it, uh, if it was normal, uh, if it was going to be like that forever, if it was going to get worse. Like if someone's 14 years old and starts feeling so depressed or starts feeling even a little depressed and then by the time they're 15 they're more depressed and by the time they're 16 they're so depressed that they don't feel like they can continue staying alive Mm. when that's your only frame of existence it's not like you had 30 good years and success in a career and whatever else and some ups and downs and you lost someone along the way So you know that these things have a tendency to pass and that they alleviate. Mm -hmm. If it's just a downhill roll Mm. for years, when you don't even clearly remember most of your life up to that point, it becomes very hard to see a reason to continue. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often feeling like that, it has real detrimental effects on your relationships. And you also perceive it to be way worse on the relationships than it might actually be. And so often uh, it felt like, and for people who are close to me, I've had partners in the past attempt um, or close friends attempt suicide. They feel like uh, to stay alive is to do more harm to the people they care about than uh, to die Mitch, that's such a thoughtful answer um, in terms of like just putting into context of, you know, being so young and having this happen and not, not really having like the, the context, like the broader perspective that it might actually be a mental health challenge and it's actually a phase of your life. It just, it just feels so enormous. Um, and so, you know, also consistent with what Michelle is saying, right, that uh, sometimes we don't even know what that is um, and, and how to manage it or having the strategies and tools. Nicola, you work with um, uh, transgender youth um, and they're a group that's especially at risk. Can you tell me a little bit more about this group and why they're at higher risk? And, and, and what is it that we can do in our everyday practice to support ongoing care for this group? Certainly. Our trans, transgender um, youth and transgender adults have the highest rate of attempted suicide of any group. So it's about 48% will actually attempt suicide in their life, which is really high. And I think some of the reasons are that on top of all that 
difficult adolescent transition and growth period, coming to terms with a, such a core identity as gender in a society that is so binary is extremely challenging. We know that if they have a family that's supportive, they, they will actually manage that journey a lot better. Um, I think there's a lot we can do as practices, simple things like putting um, rainbow flags, which are LGBTQI flags, and also mm -hmm. there's a specific transgender flag as well that you could just show in your practice that, that sort of immediately people identify this practice as okay. Um, you can do simple things like on your website, you can have your preferred pronouns. So if I write my name on my website is, you know, Nicola Holmes, my preferred pronouns are she and her, that tells people we're aware of gender. Um, asking people what gender they prefer, what pronouns they prefer, um, that, that's okay with youth actually, but it's if you start asking 50-year-olds just randomly what pronouns they prefer, they get really, really confused. But it's a good <laughs> practice with adolescents, like what pronouns do you prefer? Because most adolescents are more aware of that. I think compared to 50 years ago where um, gay and lesbian young people were, it's even harder for our trans people now. They're still not really accepted to be who they are and there's a lot of confusion in themselves. So they need extra special care and long-term slow work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just having that rainbow flag on there uh, is mm. absolutely consistent with my practice as well. I have it on my window and also on my website. It's a specific uh, business association you can join. It's just for businesses, um, for LGBTQI, um, that people can join. So please do look that up. Um, it, it is. I've had a lot of clients come through and, and it was because of that rainbow flag because it's really hard to know how your psych is going to respond. Um, so I have the next question here, which is uh, we talk about self-harm and suicide, Michelle, and um, are they linked? Do we treat self-harm the same as suicide risk? Is it a precursor? Because this is a question that's often asked by parents as well as teachers um, who are really concerned when they're seeing self-harming um, adolescents. Um, yes. So I guess it is worth, I guess, unpacking self-harm. So self-harm can be talked in, I guess, multiple ways, um, but kind of from a research perspective, there is yeah, non-suicidal self-harm and there's um, intentional self-harm with suicidal intent, which is what we more consider a suicide attempt. So they, um, so self-harm, so if we're thinking more around the kind of non-suicidal self-harm, um, it isn't always related yet to an intention to die, but there are links between the two behaviours. So we do know that um, if you have a history of self-harm, I think the risk is around twice as high for then going on to attempt suicide compared mm -hmm. to people who don't have a history of self-harm. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also important to remember that um, I think not that I think, but suicide attempt is one of the more robust risk factors for mm -hmm. a future suicide attempt. So we that we know that um, when people are engaging in suicide attempts, they really kind of become that highest risk um, population for then going on to have a future attempt. The risk is about three times in that population. So, um, so yes, they're definitely linked. Um, self-harm doesn't always mean a suicide attempt will occur but certainly I think if we're thinking about warning signs something to look out for. Absolutely. Nicola? Right. 
I was going to say I might toss a comment in there too around self-harm. Um, so I see I, I'm going to pull a statistic. It was I think one in nine young people um, attempt self-harm at some time in Australia. And the people that I'm seeing, they're using it more as a mindfulness exercise to stop psychological distress rather than this is the majority. There's obviously no one box fits all. But people tell you that they're in such a distressed state on an emotional kind of level up here. When they actually do a physical action, this distress stops. It's kind of like that. Your body is drawn to the other senses mm. and, and this pain stops. And so it's often a self-soothing behaviour that people do because it works. And so it's very, you know, it's challenging for them if people say, well, just stop doing this. Because That's right. It, it's actually helping to hold a, a, a psychological distress mm. Um there's definitely that link. And I think someone asked on the questions before about, you know, were those statistics of people presenting with self-harm and, and suicidal behaviour the same in the in the question box um, to emergency departments? I think of them quite differently. And the young people can usually identify themselves if you ask them, you know, was your intent around this action to die uh, many of them will say, no, no, I, I just want to feel better and it makes me feel better. So, yeah. Yeah, that is sort of a reminder that we need to have like other strategies in place rather than just say stop um, Yes, because stopping is not enough. We've, we've kind of got to work on the other strategies for coping. Absolutely. So for coping, do you want me to give you a little feedback on coping for, oh, <laughs> for, please for go when for you've it, got yeah. someone who's got <laughs> self-harm in front of you? Mm. Um, there's often things like you do that psychoeducation around how important it is that it makes you feel better and just acknowledging their pain and that this is working for them at the moment, then you need to try and give them other ideas to try. So they could try mm. holding onto ice cubes. That's very painful and doesn't actually scar or, or mm. as risky. They can try my favourite, which is hard to get people to do, and it works really well. So they don't, they don't always want to do it because it's so painful, is eating red chilies. Mm. So eating a chili will just make your whole sensory system come straight into your mouth. Mm. Then I do a different exercise where I, I draw around their hand on a piece of paper mm. and we just write, brainstorm two things that you can um, smell, two things that you like the taste of, that kind of sensory activity, two things you like to look at, two things that you really like to listen to and two sensations you like on your skin. You get them to do that. That's an also a, a way of building up mindfulness activities that can change your, your state of being. I sometimes use that as part of a suicide prevention plan with a few numbers at the top where you would ring and then try some of these activities and then assess, am I feeling better or worse? And if mm. I'm feeling worse, I need more support. Here are my contact numbers, et cetera. If I'm feeling better, then, wow, I'm learning mastery on that sort of distress tolerance or thought tolerance. Mm. And if I'm getting better with mindfulness activities, then that's great. You know, mm. I might have to do it again 10 minutes later or an hour later. But at that moment, I've actually managed to ride that wave of thinking. But it, it can be used for self-harm as well. You're trying to teach and give resources for self-soothing. And, of course, you then have to look at what's behind all this distress. 
you know, is mm-hmm. that around bullying or trauma or whatever? Sorry, I can talk a lot. <laughs> no, your passion and, and some of your ideas are going to be so helpful to our practitioners as well because we're sometimes here to just get like some really clear ideas as to how to manage, you know, when we do see a, a patient that's self-harming. And we've got a question here from Julian wrote, is escalating severity of self-harm over time <coughs> a strong risk factor for suicide than a lower degree or more stable degree of self-harm as in desensitization for pain and distress of a possible suicide attempt? I would Mich- say definitely. definitely. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'd say definitely because um, they are desensitizing to further, you know, harm and more at risk even of dying by mistake mm-hmm. as yeah. in it wasn't their intent to die they were trying to self-soothe they were trying to stop the pain but because they're doing such big actions now they actually yeah yeah and I think that's a really big suicide theory that that sort of fits with that desensitization um approach what about you Michelle Would yeah you I was going to um say that I feel the research is a bit more mixed around mm. that I mean it definitely makes sense and I think it probably is seen in practice, but um, there's a big, you know, there are a lot of suicide theories around what, you know, why, what kind of differentiates um, suicidal ideators from suicide attempters. And um, there's this kind of idea around capability for suicide, which is often where self-harm is often kind of treated as that kind of measure of capability through that desensitization, um, you know, people exposing themselves to, um, you know, I guess reducing their fear through exposure. So um, I think, I mean, I don't research a lot in that kind of theoretical space, but yeah, from my memory, the findings aren't necessarily um, confirming that that is, I mean, Mm. it just might be that self-harm is not that kind of, yeah, not the best kind of indicator of um, capability for suicide. But Mm. um, I agree with everything Nicola said before that, though. I think so many good (laughs) ideas. And um, I was just thinking when you said the ice cube thing that um, I personally have been in therapy for various reasons as well. And one at one session, my therapist gave me um, an ice, like a freezer brick um, for that same purpose of kind of grounding yourself because I was... um, having a panic attack basically um and it was really helpful I actually go I actually use it quite a bit at home so I think I really love those really really easy to implement simple strategies that you know people can use and anywhere for distress tolerance I just think they're you know amazing strategies that we should be exposing yeah young people to I think you know, yeah. to get them familiar with those concepts and get them developing their own strategies for coping yeah. with distress. Well, together, I might hop in. Yeah, on go, this one, go for it, Mitch. Carol. I was just about to ask yeah. you a question, Mitch. So I'm glad you've hopped in. <laughs> Amazing. Um, regarding um, distress tolerance skills, that's something that uh, my family is learning a lot about at the moment. It's very important um, to both uh, the way that myself and my wife cope with uh, the distress that we're finding ourselves experiencing for um, some different trauma reasons. Uh, The biggest thing that my uh, wife's clinical psychologist uh, suggested uh, is what's called a hard reset. Um, So just another toolkit thing you can suggest to someone, I suppose. Um, Doesn't matter if you've still got your clothes on, as long as you can bring yourself to stand in a cold shower for 20 seconds it completely like refloods the neurology of your brain and it brings you back to a, having a capacity for um, emotional 
uh, expression in a way that's a bit uh, healthier and uh, and less of, a, of a, an inward spiral, I guess. It mm. sort of stops that constant narrowing of the thoughts because it's such a huge shock to the system. Mm. Um, the yeah. I'm I'm obviously not a researcher um, regarding the the suicide risk from self harm question. Um, but from the study that I did when I was at uni for psychology, as well as uh, just from per- all of the personal experience I have in my life, first and second hand, the thing that anecdotally fits the best to me um, is something called Joyner's interpersonal theory. Uh, and basically it, the idea is that someone won't ever attempt suicide unless they have three things, two of three things overlapping. It's an acquired capacity for suicide, perceived burdensomeness, and a thwarted sense of belonging. Uh, and so, like, with people in um, uh, transgender um, contexts or who struggle with their, uh, their gender identity, um, that thwarted belongingness is, is part and parcel with our culture. Um, and as soon as they're not accepted by a group or by a family member, they've got that perceived burdenness, burdensomeness too. Um, and so I would guess that that might be why um, they're attempting uh, far more frequently than other populations. Absolutely. Do you know, Mitch, um, the shower approach is like well within like what we call the dialectical behavior therapy approach framework, um, which is this massive change of temperature seems to do like that hard reset. So I love that cold shower approach because it's definitely something that I teach in my private practice. The other one that I want to mention here is just go for a massive run around the block that also changes the temperature as well. But um, there is that theory that somehow a temperature change just allows us to ground ourselves um, and it, it gives us that a little bit more of a mindful approach, which was what, Nicola, you were talking about with the with the hands. So um, let's get into identifying risk and some of the disclosure barriers um, because we're running down on time as well and I really want to get to some of the meat of this, right? So what are some of the immediate signs and higher uh, risk sort of factors um, and other lifestyle factors um, that we can look out for um, as practitioners, even without disclosure? What are the things, what are the factors we need to look out for that suggest to us, I can see elevated risk, not only far away, but also the immediate risk as well, the immediate signs. Nicola? Well, within, there's sort of, I I divide that into um, risk factors, which you can't change. So, you know, mm-hmm. being transgender, being Indigenous, mm-hmm. um, being male, they're automatically um, a higher risk groups. Then there's things that you can identify in the consultation that increase the risk at that time, which is more sort of warning signs that we can often intervene in. You can't intervene in someone's, you know, cultural background, but you can intervene in the things that are happening now that are increasing the risk. So things like sleep disturbance, like high levels of agitation Mm. within the consultation. So, you know, really sleep deprived with intense psychological distress and now seeing lots of agitation. Mm. You can can actually address those clinically around, Mm. you know, medical, non-medical sleep 
hygiene or medications. You can, as GPs, we can use medication to help a little bit with agitation right at that moment, which brings down the risk. Increasing use of drug and alcohol Mm -hmm. around a lot of suicidal thinking, that's increasing the risk of the thought going through to action. So Mm. what can we do as a clinician to try and reduce the risk of them using more drugs and alcohol in the next 24 hours you know can we put them somewhere the person somewhere else can we move some of the alcohol like can we have an extra person coming in to sort of negotiate Mm. around that I think also people talking about plans for suicide Mm. so which that's that's really different to I'm having suicidal thinking I've Mm. now got some plans and these are my plans you can really break those plans down And look at every chink in the chain. Mm. Where can you reduce the risk? Say, for example, the plan is around hanging. Like, do they have a rope? And where can we put that rope? Can Mm. we put that somewhere else? Can we put a lock on the garage door between you and the rope that just, you know, makes that a little bit harder? So I think talking about, talking and planning about suicide is a risk that we really need to take note. People who are talking about, their plans are really quite high risk. We need to think about intervening in some way around that. People who are getting very agitated, sleep deprived, their mm. their risk, you know, warning signs that this thinking could could turn mm. to action. Yep. I'm sure there's more, but I'll stop talking and let join in, and some more will come into my head. <laughs> do, you, do you know, as a practitioner, one of the ones that, and I don't know if it is a um, high risk, but extreme isolation, like just yes. no friendships, no connection yes. to anyone, and really almost estranged from family. Is that a risk? Yes, <laughs> and also the shift, the withdrawal from contacts. Mm. So. I think of it as not a research perspective, but for someone to act on their suicidal thoughts, they need to really snip off their connections to people. Mm. If there's a strong connection to someone, that's a very strong preventative, Mm. you know, um, protective factor. So if they already have no one close to snip off from, Mm. they're even more at risk. Yes. So we've got this really like interesting comment actually in the chat box, which is, you know, Michael saying, it's, you know, I think assessing and determining risk is so important as so many suicides have no indication. But we have a massive barrier here because I think we need the adolescent to disclose and tell us. Um, so do adolescents typically disclose? I'm going to turn to Michelle now. What is the, uh, the disclosure rate like in adolescents? Yeah, so um, last year my team did a survey on this particular topic um, with young people in the age of 16 to 25. So we deliberately um, recruited people who were in that age group who were experiencing suicidal thoughts and who were actually engaged in mental health treatment. And the reason we did that was because it kind of piggybacked off a trial we'd um, run sort of just before that where um, of a digital therapeutic for suicidal ideation, where we actually recruited, um, we got like 90% of our sample were people who were already engaged in treatment or who had been engaged in treatment. And it's not really who we were expecting to recruit um, because, because digital therapeutics are kind of marketed as for the people who would be reluctant to 
to reach out for face-to-face mm. treatment. So we did this study to kind of, I guess, dig in a bit to, to why treatment-seeking young people would want to use a digital therapeutic. Um, and um, a big part of that was around disclosure. So, um, so 40% of our sample, so we ended up recruiting over 500 young people, 40% had actually never disclosed um, their suicidal ideation to their um, mental health um, um to a mental health professional, to their practitioner, um, and which is huge, given that this is a, a you know a population who are part in mental health treatment, and the main reasons that they weren't disclosing. So the kind of biggest themes were that um, they were really concerned that the information would not remain confidential, um, that maybe their parents would get told or other people. And related to that, there was a kind of fear or uncertainty of the repercussions of disclosing. So I think that kind of fear of uh, what would happen around, would they be sent to hospital or other repercussions? So that was the biggest theme. Um, But then kind of secondary to that, there was this general sense among some people that that their suicidal thoughts would eventually just go away. So um, the you know, grow out of them so that there was really no point talking about them. Um, And the other kind of theme was that common mental health disorder, so that they were kind of largely in treatment for depression and anxiety, and that those issues were impacting or impairing their kind of daily functioning um, much more. So they were more pressing issues. So suicidal ideation was really a secondary issue to that sample. And then we did have this small group who I think somewhat concerningly said that they didn't disclose just because they weren't directly asked um, if they were experiencing suicidal thoughts. Um, so, yeah, so that's that. But we also did look at also whether what would make them more likely to disclose. So that was um, so they were more likely to disclose if if their suicidal thinking was starting to interfere with their life at the same level or more so than the kind of their uh, mental health condition. Um, and they were also more likely to disclose in cases where they had greater therapeutic alliance. So um, obviously just feeling more comfortable to disclose. Um, so, yeah, so I think I thought that was all really interesting. And I think there's a lot of implica- implications that kind of come out of that research mm-hmm. um, in terms of how practitioners address that kind of confidentiality, which really does seem to be very important to young people um, and the limits of confidentiality. Um, mm-hmm. But, and, it's not just about making the kind of practitioners do the work. There's also that sense of, you know, we need to educate young people. We need to increase their mental health literacy, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so not, so they can sort of also understand what's happening to them, which make them more willing to disclose um, and I guess address that kind of confidentiality Mm -hmm. stuff with them as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's such a high level of trust to be able to say to somebody, I have these thoughts and these plans, isn't it? And so a health professional asking in a really clinical setting doesn't mean that we're going to actually get a a real response. Mitch, um, you know, you experienced suicidal thoughts when you were an adolescent. What were some of the barriers um, for adolescents, do you think, in terms of disclosing to a health professional or an adult um, who might care about them and be able to do something? you know, to be able to tell an adult, look, I'm struggling. What are some of the barriers, do you think, for, for adolescents? I think that Michelle captured it really mm. well, especially mm. when it comes to a professional context. The only thing I might add there is that it often, uh, people tend to have family GPs 
um, I don't know how much Nicola can speak to this, but I, when I was a kid, when I realized that my mental health was uh, suffering and that something was wrong, I did not in any way feel comfortable telling my family GP because of course they were going to tell my mom and I didn't want my mom knowing because my mom would have just thrown me into therapy and I didn't want to go to therapy. I didn't feel like that was necessary or that I needed that. Mm. Uh, you, you had some ambivalence about therapy. Um, and why was that when you were an adolescent? Because I think this is really important. Um, yeah, yeah. So the other part of um, what I was going to say is that they feel like uh, young people tend to feel like adults don't get it. Um, and when it came to therapy, I was convinced until I was about 16 or 17 that um psychologists and really doctors as well if I were to talk to them about my mental health they only cared because it was their job because they were being paid to and I wanted someone who actually empathized and cared about me but I had this really um, clinical and detached perception of mental health uh, professionals and similarly with adults uh, I think that this is much less of a thing now anecdotally at the very least it feels to, like it's changed a lot in the last decade and is continuing to get even better but when I was an adolescent it really was that idea that parents don't understand my parents won't get it um, the teachers don't understand all of those people are too old like the news and society they talk about how mental health is on the rise and it's this almost like as if it's a new thing and so my mum and my dad, they have no concept of mental health. They're, you know, suck it up, sunshine. You, she'll be right. Push through it. Everything will get better. You just like, you can't do anything about it. You just have to keep going type Australians. Mm. So directly or indirectly, <laughs> I was hearing those messages from my entire childhood. Mm. And Mitch, so what would you, oh, sorry to interrupt, it, Mitch. Uh, going. So it never, it never felt appropriate to tell an adult because mm. they would just judge me and not get it. Nicola, you're going to jump in there and say something. Yeah, I was going to jump in around this this concept about asking young people about suicidal thinking. Mm. I think it's really important that we separate the suicidal thinking from the identity of the young person. So how you ask these questions is really important. And I would have many different versions of how I would ask. Mm -hmm. So patients I know really well that have got chronic suicidal thinking um, I would just in the consultation say something really simple like, how are you managing your suicidal thoughts at the moment? Are they bothering you? And I would say that every time I see them. Um, for someone that you're sort of coming in for the first time, you've got to normalise it and you've got to completely make sure that they know that you're not scared by this. Mm. You've got to be so grounded in yourself. It's like it's really common and normal for young people with the kind of sadness or pain or confusion that you're going through to think at times that life's not worth living or to have some suicidal thoughts. Have you been experiencing these kind of thoughts? So it's like about the suicidal thoughts. It's not like, are you feeling suicidal? Like, is your identity? It's like, it's normal for people in your situation to think like this, is this happening to you? And, and then you're really calm sort of giving, I can cope with that. This is normal to me. I think they pick up the anxiety we have once people start disclosing their suicidal thinking. 
we're like, oh, should we ring the ambulance? Do we have to schedule them? Should we tell their mum? Like they feel, if we start thinking like that, they feel that and they get that anxiety of confidentiality. Um, You know, the amount of times in my job I've had to actually schedule someone or really override their confidentiality, which you have to do in Mm. ultimate safety trumps confidentiality. Mm. It's very few you know, there's a lot of suicidal thinking out there that can be managed without escalating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if you, yeah, you need to ask mm-hmm. and you need to be comfortable with whatever answer comes back and very curious about what's happening for the young person rather than too busy thinking, what should I be doing next? <laughs> Absolutely. I love that you started off with that phrase. It's really common for people when they're feeling really down to, because I think there's nothing worse than, you know, coming in and then going, no, that's not okay, right? That's yes, like the yeah. scariest thing. Um, and so, so I really love that approach. Now, yeah. if a person, if an adolescent were to, to disclose that they have risk, that they have been having some suicidal thoughts and plans, um, what are some of the processes we can put in place to keep that adolescent safe? What do we as practitioners, both of them, you know what, I know that we've all like had, you know, that that safety training, but we're looking for some tips, you know, from experienced researchers and and um, practitioners, what can we put in place? What do we need to do at that moment? You're saying keeping really calm, which I really love. Is there anything else we could do um, in that in that safety planning stage that can really encourage um, an adolescent to stay safe and to use some of these strategies? I might turn to Michelle for this one because you guys must have some processes in place within that research space as well for when adolescent disclose risk. I was going to say Nicola's probably better. <laughs> more, more research is not kind of at the coalface of this mm. problem. So mm. we often aren't kind of directly interacting mm. with um, suicidal young people. Mm. So I'm going to pass over to Nic- yeah, Nicola no, first. Cool. I'll, I'll, take I'll, <laughs> I'll take that. No problem at all. Um, so in the consultation, I will use the safety planning as an extended risk assessment. Mm. So if they say yes to some suicidal thinking, it's like, okay, it, you know, is, is that bothering you much? Like how distressing is that? If it's like a wave, do you feel like it's an odd wave or are you really out the back in the whitewash just to gauge a quick little feel mm. of where they're at? And then it's around, okay, would it be okay if we did a little plan on what you might be able to do when that thinking next comes along? Yeah. And so there are lots of tools you can do. So I actually, in the digital space, I really like the Beyond Now app. Anyone who hasn't in the group had much work with the Beyond Now app, I really encourage you just download it on your phone. It's free. It's done through the Beyond Blue guys. And it's a very good um, suicide prevention app that people can then share with other people in their support group. They can, you can do it online. You can share it with the doctor. It's got all the essential things that you actually need, provide support numbers, et cetera. And the thing I like about that app with young people is you can upload photos, reasons for living, put Mm -hmm. photos of their dog or their friend or something up on it. It could be quite personal. So you can do, uh, use a tool like that when you're doing your planning. Or I often do that simple hand drawing 
And I say, look, let's do a little bit of a plan. When these thoughts come along, who are three people you can talk to? We're trying to just do that connection to people thing again, like strengthen that up. Don't have to talk about your suicidal thinking. Just connect to friend Jane. Makes you feel better when you chat to her. So ring friend Jane for five minutes. Um, So we try to get three people, maybe a helpline if they'll accept it. And, And again, always tell them, ring this helpline and say, my doctor friend, whoever told me to ring this as part of my plan. That's all you got to say. <laughs> They'll pick up from there because often they don't know what to say. Do I have to say the right thing to get in? Yeah. Um, and then we'll work through some sensory activities and if, if that's not working, then they've got the escalation. But while you're doing that sort of safety planning with them, you're actually assessing risk as in if you say to them, who could you ring? And they go, no one. I'm more worried. You know, if you say, you know, let's look about how we could make your scene a little bit safer. Mm. I don't know. What Mm. could you do as a distraction activity? Nothing. Mm. You know, so if you're getting this flat resistance to your plan, that really concerns me more. Mm. And I think if they can't buy into, and you can read their body language, you know, you know whether you've got them or not. If you, if you can't connect on that and they're not engaging on a plan, I'm much more concerned. And then in the consultation, I think the challenge is who else do we need to involve to keep this young person safe? You know, is it at a level where we really have to go up the tree into hospital acute care team being mm. involved? Do we have to send them to the emergency department? Do we have mm. to schedule them? Do we have to write a letter and get the ACS to follow them up in 24 mm. to 48 hours? Mm. That kind of thinking. But even coming down a bit, like, is there a best friend? Is there a teacher? Is there a parent, hopefully, or some other family member that we can, they will allow us to bring in to at least let them know that we're worried about this person's mood at the moment? Mm. And I say they need more chicken soup and love. You know, they need more attention and someone to actually spend time with them and maybe Mm. some even code language around I'm not feeling safe Mm. and what we want that other person to then do. So that's kind of, um, I don't know if I've got too fun, but that's the kind of things that I would do with a young person who says I'm having, yes, I'm having some suicidal Mm. thoughts. Yeah. I then break down what can we do next time or now you do. And as you're doing that, you're again working out what is the engagement. No risk assessment is worth anything with no engagement. Mm. So if the young person is so shut down and so defended Mm. that they don't really want to engage in this process, it's just Mm. harder to be confident that your plan is going to work. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Michael, you've asked this question, what what is the advice uh, action if the person says they're leaving this clinic and they're going to hurt themselves? I mean, that to me is, you know, you do need to, exactly what Nicola is saying, you know, they're not engaging in a safety plan. We want to be thinking about just maybe going to emergency and definitely calling that emergency person as well. One of the things I think I always mention, because there's such a stigma around going to the hospital, which is I think I, I tend to kind of pitch it this way, and I don't know how you do it, Nicola, which is I go, look, it's actually just to get you to see like a psychiatrist straight away. It's not about like this long-term hospitalization and, you know, throwing you into hospital. It's really so we can um, keep an eye on you and get you to see health professionals straight away rather than wait ages to go and see a psychiatrist and to, to just have some people kind of supporting you um, when we go to the hospital. And I think that kind of reduces a bit of that stigma about going to, to emergency sometimes. 
a great idea, except rurally mm. they probably won't get to see us. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot more faith in the health system. Uh, you come and work with us in the country. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so that, is, yeah. that, is a, that is a really good and valid way. It's getting mm. timely help, which is mm. the same sometimes medically. We'll send people, we say, oh, look, you can get the blood test and the X-ray all done in the one spot and sorted mm. out in a timely fashion. Mm. So sometimes it's around timeliness. Mm-hmm. I'll also, um, I, I'm really clear to people that the hospital is not really about therapy because mm. often they think they're going to go there and get this wonderful therapy. Mm. Hospital is about providing that safe environment mm. for us to decide what to do next, yes. you know, and it takes the pressure off your mum or dad or whoever for keeping you safe when you've got this intense thinking. Mm-hmm. It's sharing that load of keeping you safe with people yeah. who can provide food in a safe environment, you don't have to think about anything. Mm. And sometimes also a trip to the hospital can escalate everyone's awareness that this is very serious. Sometimes mm. the young person is really struggling and nobody else really does get it, like you say, Mitch. They they mm. really, the family are not understanding how distressed this person is. And sometimes as the clinician connecting around the, the high risk and escalating that a bit can sometimes be very beneficial. It's tricky. Mm. Sometimes it's not, but it can really bring that family into like, oh, oh my gosh, actually, we're at risk of losing our child. This is terrible. What do we need mm. to do differently and mm. pivot behaviours a bit? Yep, absolutely. Now, I do want to answer one of the questions in the Q&A, um, which people are really concerned about. I think this actually stops us sometimes from talking about um, suicide um, with our adolescents. So, Bronwyn's asked, well, could you speak to the issue of copycatting behaviour and adolescent having um, a friend suicide and then developing suicidal thoughts? What does the research say around that area, Michelle? Do we have peer contagion effects around suicide? Um, we do. So clustering, I guess, or contagion of suicide where you see a cluster is is more likely to happen in younger people um, compared to adults. But I think it is, it's, I think youth suicides that occur as part of that kind of cluster or contagion, contagion mm-hmm. effect are still, they're still a very small proportion of all suicides. So I think we need to kind of keep perspective. Yeah. Um, but if a young person does lose somebody close to them, you know, the important takeaway of that is that they then do themselves through that bereavement process become at risk of suicide themselves. So you mm. want to have really good um, postvention supports in place mm. um, in schools, you know, upskilling you know, upskilling people at schools and in your family to be able to have these conversations, you know, these direct conversations around, are you feeling suicidal? Absolutely. I want to differentiate that from um, talking about suicide and asking directly. Um, Does that increase a risk? Because that is a really big myth. It makes people really scared to then go, look, you've had maybe a friend attempt suicide or um, I'm concerned about you, um, but are we allowed to talk about it because there's a peer contagion effect, right? So uh, can we get some clarity here, Michelle? Does talking about suicide increase the risk for an adolescent? I think Nicola's head shaking. Absolutely not. There's really good evidence now that talking about suicide is absolutely not harmful and actually for younger people particularly can be quite beneficial. And Mm. I know um, just a couple of years ago, all the kind of key mental health players 
um, in Australia got together and did a big um, public kind of awareness campaign called You Can Talk around this exact topic, um, which is really about kind of breaking down that myth, breaking down the stigma, um, getting people to realise that you do need to have these very direct conversations and how you can have those um, conversations as well. So um, obviously it's about you know listening rather than kind of judgment not trying to fix the problem for young people when you're having these conversations it's about as Nicola has spoken to about keeping them safe for now um you know and you know I guess being aware of where they can get help from if they need to access help Hmm. Mitch we're we're running down on time so I'm going to give you really like the end question here um which I think is really important um what's the one thing that health professionals can do coming away from this podcast that can help us better manage risk in adolescence risk so Mitch what do you think I think that it's really important that adolescents know it's okay to speak to a different health professional to disclose things if they have to. So uh, if it's that it's possible to speak to a different GP in the practice or to educate an adolescent, if you think that there's a risk that you can feel like they're not going to tell you for whatever reason, explain how they can go about going somewhere else, that they can get their own Medicare card when they're 14 or that there are, you know, telehealth options or whatever else is available. And the same with someone who's in in a situation where they're receiving help and it's not going well or it's not effective, that you can change psychologists, you can see a different counsellor. All of those things are completely okay if you're not gelling with that person. Uh, I feel like adolescents just, they don't, understand what's going on well enough um and so teaching them that it's okay and speaking to someone else is okay and to uh to go in whatever direction makes them feel more comfortable and more safe is the best thing to do that just making sure they know that they're not alone and that they're not doing, they're not experiencing something strange. It's not bizarre. It's not because they're broken or because they have a reason to be ashamed or that they're doing anything wrong. Mm. These things just happen. These feelings just come up mm. and it's so hard to push and fight through it, but it, the help is out there. Those resources do exist in whatever context you're comfortable with getting them, whether it's in person or online or professional or uh, informal, it's all there because the world knows that it's important to help keep young people alive. Mitch, I, I really love that answer because, you know, what you're talking about is um, so much about giving that adolescent a sense of control um, when they enter that clinical space and to know that they have choices um, when things are feeling so out of control. Um, and so, you know, it's just a gentle reminder to all of us to remember to provide that adolescent with choice. And to that end, you know, I've got it up on on um, our on our slides here, but I know that there are people just listening in. Um, we've got some wonderful digital tools that we promote quite heavily at the Black Dog Institute. I use them regularly in my practice, 
Bite Back has some fantastic challenges on there. I use them for their mindfulness audio files. So many of my clients love this, right? They're two minute to eight minute snippets um, that can really help just to listen to it, you know, in short breaks, um, even during the day. The Beyond Now safety plan has been just fantastic. Um, you can email these safety plans to anyone, right? So I love that I can get a copy, but um, we can also send it to mom and dad or a really important friend or carer, um, and the, the resource is just right in their phone. You know, all the phone numbers are in there um, in that app. And, of course, a gentle reminder here that the Black Dog Institute online clinic um, is uh, up there and available, uh, and we have the Essential Network for health professionals as well, um, which is to support a lot of our health professionals currently who are experiencing this pandemic and uh, a lot of workload and stress at the moment. So just promoting some of these wonderful online tools. There are also resources to support you in terms of the, this particular topic. Um, last night, they had a webinar on e-mental health prac, um, webinar 52, digital safety planning for suicide prevention. Now it's just finished, so it's gonna take us about two weeks to, to get it up online, but please keep an eye out for it. That's webinar 52. And, I, um, and we also have plenty of health professional training. Um, Michelle, Nicola, and Mitch, do you know what? We only got through a few questions because there were so many wonderful things to talk about tonight, so many um, resources and strategies um, from a research perspective, as well as from in terms of practice, Nicola, some of these strategies are wonderful. Um, and also, Mitch, you know, your reminder of what it's like for the adolescent to help them feel in control, um, to to increase that mental health literacy, um, and to put into perspective what it's like um, for an adolescent at risk. Thank you so much to our wonderful panel members. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. This is a reminder that we usually have our podcast um, every last Wednesday of the month. We're going to skip March, but we are going to be back in April. So we will see everyone soon. Thank you, panel members, for giving up an evening for us. And thank you to our audience for joining us tonight. We will see you later. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au. 